the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Well, it's just great to be be with you this morning, everybody. Great to be uh, great to be worshiping the Lord with you, uh, and great to see our church uh, full again. It's uh, it's just always such a blessing to be able to welcome people. Uh, to worship the Lord with us here in this place. We are continuing our series in the Gospel of John uh, under this title of Come and See. And this morning we've got to chapter 14. And so we're going to be thinking about this, uh, this, this, this subject of Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Very similar to what they're talking about up in the, uh, up in the lounge, actually, in the reason for God. But before we get onto that, let me just ask you a very general question, which is, how are you feeling this morning? How are you feeling? Uh, Andrew touched on it. We probably come to church with all kinds of different emotions and feelings. And I wonder if any of these things, uh, oops, I wonder if any of those things uh, ring a bell for you, resonate with you. I wonder if you're feeling a little bit confused this morning, uh, a little bit perplexed, maybe a little bit lost. Well, if that is you this morning, then I just want to say you've come to the right place because you are definitely in good company. I think we all feel those things some of the time. But this morning, we're going to see Jesus' disciples. They definitely felt this way in the passage that we're going to be looking at together today. So if you've got a Bible, you might want to open it to John chapter 14. Um, The Green Church Bibles, that's page 1022. Uh, If you've got a phone, you can find it yourself. Uh, And if you just want to look at the screens, uh, the words will be up there. But uh, if you want to grab a Bible or or find the passage, then please do that. Um, Before we we read the passage, I just want to uh, read the first bit of the first verse, because it provides us with a clue as to what has happened. Jesus says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. That's how he opens the chapter. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And if he starts the chapter that way, I think it's because he knows that their hearts are troubled. He knows that they're going through tough times. So why? What's going on in their lives that makes them feel troubled? Well, there are three things in the immediate context that relate to this. Last week, Alex did a great job of taking us through the first half of of John chapter 13. But in the second half of John chapter 13... After the the foot washing that Jesus does for his disciples, the mood darkens. And Jesus says three things. The first thing he says to his disciples is, one of you, the people whose feet I have just washed as a servant king, one of you who I've spent three years with, living really close with, and who I count as my dear friends, one of you is going to betray me. That would have really brought the atmosphere down, wouldn't it? at that last supper with his disciples. But then he goes on to say, actually, I'm not going to be with you for very much longer. In a little while, I am going to be going away, says Jesus, to these people who spent three years living as close as it's possible to live with him. And they're suddenly feeling, oh my goodness, what does that mean for us? And then to cap it all at the end of chapter 13, the last thing that Jesus says to Peter in many ways, the natural leader of this group of disciples, is before the cock crows, 
you will have disowned me three times. There was a lot for these disciples to be troubled about, right? Well, we're going to think about how Jesus answers that feeling that they have of being troubled. And we're going to do it by looking at three things. We're going to think about Jesus in terms of trusting Jesus, in terms of knowing Jesus, and in terms of asking Jesus. So that's where we're going to go. Uh, And we're going to start with that first one, trusting Jesus. So if you've got your Bible, uh, this is what it says. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. My father's house has plenty of room. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Okay, we'll, we'll pause it there. We'll pause it there just for a bit. Um, that first line again, do not let your hearts be troubled, says Jesus. That, that word troubled is quite an interesting one in John's gospel. He uses it, I think, five or six times in total. The first time he uses it is in John chapter five. If you've been with us through the series so far, you'll remember John chapter five. It's the time when Jesus heals the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. And the story went that the pool in this water, the water in this pool rather, uh, when it got stirred up, when it was agitated, that was the sign that the angel had come and was going to be able to heal the first person who came to the pool. And the man says, I've got nobody to help me to get into the water when it's stirred up. That's that word troubled, the same word in the original Greek that John writes. And you know what it's like when you feel troubled. How did your stomach feel? It's all churning, isn't it? Your mind is churning, your heart is churning, it's stirred. That's the sense of this word, troubled. But then the next time that we read uh, the word is in John chapter 11. And this time, and this is true for the next three times, it is Jesus whose heart is troubled. John chapter 11, Johnny spoke about this really powerfully a few weeks ago. Jesus comes to his friend's Uh, Lazarus and Martha and Mary. Lazarus has died and he is dead and he is buried. And Jesus meets his grieving sisters. And when he sees their tears in John chapter 11, verse 33, he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. It's the same word. And maybe this morning you are coming to, to church with hearts heavy Because of a bereavement. Bereavement's a terrible thing to live through. And maybe that's you this morning. And if it is, know that Jesus has been in that place as well. His heart was troubled over the death of his friend. The next time we read the the word is in the next chapter, John chapter 12. This time, Jesus is thinking about the future that's coming up. And when he looks to the cross, and we're going to be thinking about the cross this morning, and he thinks about what the cross is going to involve for him, he's troubled. He doesn't want to go to this cross. 
Everything in his human nature cries out, this is a terrible place to end up, suffering on a cross. And not just the physical side of it, but the the spiritual torture of knowing that he's bearing him, the perfect, innocent son of God, is bearing the sins of the whole world and dealing with them on the cross. And as the wrath of God is poured out upon the sins that Jesus bears and punishes those sins, and Jesus bears that punishment, he knows that he's going to be separated from his loving heavenly father for the first time in all of eternity. No wonder when he thinks about this, he says in John chapter 12, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. I don't want to go there, says Jesus, but I know that I have to go there. He's thinking about the future and it's troubling him. And I wonder if this morning you've come to church with something that's in the future that's troubling you. Might be something in your family, might be something in your workplace, might be something in the wider world that's troubling you. If that's you, know that Jesus this morning knows what that feels like as well. And then the final example of this word trouble that we have before John chapter 14 is in John chapter 13. And it's when Jesus is having that meal with his disciples, that last supper. And as it, after he's washed their, their feet, he, he just says, I'm troubled. He's troubled in spirit because one of you is going to betray me. And I wonder again if some of you have come to church this, this morning with the burden of a broken relationship on your heart. It's really hard when somebody who's special to you lets you down or betrays you, isn't it? The closer they are, the harder it is. Jesus knew what it was like to experience the pain and the troubled soul that comes with a broken relationship. So this morning, when, when we see Jesus saying, don't let your hearts be troubled, let's not hear Jesus saying this. He's not saying, come on, man, pull yourself together. Come on, woman, pull yourself together. That's not the sense of do not let your hearts be troubled. Jesus had been in places of trouble. He knew what they were like. He knew that human life is full of those things. But what he's saying is, don't let that place of trouble become your ultimate destination. I do not want to take you on a journey that concludes with that place of trouble and distress. I have better things in store for you. So follow me on the journey that I have with you, says Jesus. Trust in God, trust also in me, says the Son of God. And I love the, I love the picture that Jesus uses to, to describe the journey that he's going to take them on. Uh, he talks about his father's house, doesn't he? And he says there are loads of rooms in there. Um, th- this room isn't from our house, but it just reminded me of, of, of a real gift that my wife has. She has many gifts, my wife. Um, but one of her great gifts is making rooms look lovely. She's, she does it really well. I have no idea how she does it. She just says to me, Paul, get out. And... <laughs> 
and let me make this room look lovely. And so I, I gladly obey and, and go and do that. And when I come back, there's this lovely guest room that she's prepared for whoever's going to come and stay with us. And Jesus effectively says, I'm going to go and do that kind of thing for you. I'm going to go and prepare a room for you in my father's house. Now, we don't want to take it literally, obviously. There's not, there's not, there's not a heavenly Ikea and he's not sort of choosing soft furnishings. We, we know that Jesus' work of preparation is actually primarily on us, isn't it? That's how Jesus fits us and prepares us for an eternity with him. It's the work he does in us. But he does say, I'm going away. He uses this picture. I'm going away to prepare a room for you. And then I'm not just going to leave the room there looking pristine. I'm going to come and get you so that you can be with me, that you also may be where I am. That's the end of the journey. That's why Jesus wants us to trust him, because that's the picture. That's the hope. That's the joy that he holds out before us, the other end of the trouble. Trusting Jesus. Oh, I'm stuck. Oh, there we go. Thank you. Um, Knowing Jesus, that's the next thing we're going to look at. So let's open our Bibles again and read the next few verses, shall we? Uh, Verse 5. Thomas, who's one of Jesus' disciples, says to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus has said, you know the way to the place I'm going. You know where I'm going. And Jesus says, no. Thomas says, no, I don't, I don't even know where you're going. So how can I know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip Another one of Jesus' disciples said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. That's been the cry of humanity throughout the ages. Show us God. Show us God. That will be enough for us. And Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves, the things you see me doing. Knowing Jesus. Jesus says, doesn't he, in this passage, I am the way and the truth and the life. We've been thinking about the seven I am sayings that Jesus uh, gives us in the Gospel of John. This is number six. They start with uh, the bread of life uh, earlier on in the Gospel of John, and they finish in chapter 15 with I am the true vine. We are at number six. And I think there are two important things I want to underline. We've said it before, but I'm going to say it again. Uh, The first is that when Jesus says, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am, he is taking us back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus. That time when God reveals himself to Moses in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. And Moses says to him, what's your name? 
Who are you, God? Who shall I say has sent me when I go to my fellow Israelites? And God says to him, I am. That's my name. I am who I am. And whenever Jesus says, I am, in the Gospel of John, the whatever, he's taking us back to that revelation of God. And he's saying, I share the identity of the one God. The Father and I are one. I am the bread of life, the light of the world, whatever it is. That's the first thing, a big, bold claim from Jesus. He is God in a body. Second thing he also says, which flows on from it, is he says, I am the, the bread of life, not any old bread of life, the bread of life. I am the gate for the sheep, not a gate for the sheep, the gate for the sheep. And he says it all the time, doesn't he? Every single one, it's the, 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 the. And this is a very countercultural thing for us to proclaim as Christians in our very relativistic, pluralistic culture. That Jesus is somebody, is the one who reveals God uniquely and supremely and in a way that nobody else can. And he says, doesn't he? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we know that that's a kind of claim that some people will find shocking and difficult. But that is what Jesus says. And that is what we believe as those who follow him. Now, this morning, if you're here as a visitor and you're maybe thinking, whoa, that's a bit, that's a bit much. I'd really encourage you just to think about this question. And, and I'd love to invite you to come to an Alpha course. We run them at the church twice a year. The Alpha course is a place where you can ask any big questions that you've got about God and faith and Jesus. Uh, and if you're visiting from somewhere else, then you may have an Alpha course. I'm sure you'll have an Alpha course that runs close to wherever it is that you live. But don't let those big questions just kind of sit in your head. Do bring them to share with others. Uh, and if you can't wait until September for our next Alpha course, I'm sure we can do something uh, between then and now to try and help unpack some of these big, bold statements that Jesus makes. But this is the Jesus that we are invited to know and to follow as the one who reveals fully the Father, the one God. Okay, so we've thought about trusting Jesus. We thought a bit about knowing Jesus. Now we're going to conclude by thinking about asking Jesus. So we're back in the Gospel of John, verses 12 to 14. Very truly, I tell you, says Jesus, all you who have faith in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. There's a big claim, isn't there? That's a big, bold claim, another one. Um, some of you might well be thinking, hang on a minute, that just doesn't really make much sense to me. Really? Jesus will do anything that we ask him? Hmm, not sure about that. Well, two things that's worthwhile emphasizing in what Jesus says. 
The first is he says we need to ask things in his name. And that doesn't just mean that when we say a prayer, we tack on at the end, in Jesus' name, amen. It it means something much bigger and richer and deeper than that. And Josh Moody, who's written a couple of books about, about John, I think helps us to understand this when he says this. To ask for something in Jesus' name means to ask for the things that Jesus wants to happen and that reflect Jesus' desires and purposes. So we want to be asking for things in that spirit. That's the first thing. Second thing is, what is prayer all about? What's the purpose of prayer and what's the purpose of God answering prayer? I tend to think that it's often about God doing the things that I want him to do for my benefit or for the benefit of people that I'm thinking about or for the world or whatever it is. And of course, these things do happen and bring great benefits. But ultimately, Jesus says, the purpose of prayer is that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's what prayer is for. That's the ultimate purpose of prayer. So there's a couple of things that just temper that whatever you ask for will will automatically happen. But we all know that if we're people who pray, there can, there can be all kinds of answers and, and, yeah, all kinds of answers to prayer. But there are three main answers, aren't there? The first one is the one that we like. This is my favorite answer to prayer. The green light, yeah? The yes, you can have it. Uh, in our home group, the leader of our home group has, uh, has this book, actually, and she writes down in it the things that we pray for in our home group. And every so often we go back to it And we look and see which prayers have been answered. And you know what? An awful lot of them are green lights. An awful lot of them are God saying yes to the prayers that we ask, which is wonderful. We love them. Sometimes the prayer, the answer to prayer is a much more difficult answer, isn't it? It's a no. And that can be really tough, really tough to hear a no. Jesus, once again, shows us what that experience feels like. Jesus experienced a no in answer to one of his prayers. In John chapter 14, we're nearly going out to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prays this agonized prayer to his father. And in Mark's gospel, he he uses these words, Abba, Father. Abba is the word that children, little children like Teddy and Verity, used to their dad. It's a a word of intimacy. Jesus knew that his father loved him. He didn't doubt that. Abba, father, he says. And he knew his father was all powerful. Everything is possible for you. And he prays, take this cup from me. What's the cup? The cup is the cross. Jesus is saying, I don't want to go through with what lies ahead for all the reasons we've mentioned earlier. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And so Jesus experiences a no, a red light of no to that prayer. The Father says, I love you. I can't take that away from you because that is the way that you are going to save every other human being who has ever lived and put their trust in you. This is the way you have to go. And Jesus knew that was the way he had to go for our sakes. So no's can be incredibly hard. But actually, 
I think the amber, the weight, can be an even harder answer to hear. Uh, I've had to wait a number of times in my life for, for, for God to answer prayers. And I'm sure you're in the same boat if you're a person who prays. I don't know how you avoid the amber light. I don't think you can. If you're troubled about the amber light, I would really recommend this book to you. It's by a guy called Pete Gregg. It's called God on Mute. And it's a wonderful book about unanswered prayer or apparently unanswered prayer. Uh, I've read it with a fellow Christian friend. I think we both really appreciated it. I'd encourage you to read it with another Christian and talk about it because this is tough stuff. But this is a really helpful book about it. But let me ask you a question. Are you stuck on amber at the moment? Are you praying for something and you're just not getting an answer apparently from God? I'm stuck on amber at the moment. I've been stuck on amber for several years uh, about one particular thing that I'm praying for, and it's really hard. I'm convinced that it's in the will of God. I'm convinced that it will give glory to the Father through the Son. But God has not answered that prayer to me, except that he, every so often he sends me an encouragement to keep on praying. And often when I'm at my lowest ebb, he sends somebody to encourage me Either a personal conversation, I've had random strangers come up to me and talk to me about this particular thing just to encourage me, and sometimes it's through something I read or hear. I'm stuck on amber, but God in his grace is giving me encouragements to persevere. Well, the other day, um, I took the morning off work to to prepare this talk, uh, and I, I couldn't think how to finish it. I was stuck. Not on amber, but I was just stuck with what to do with this sermon. So I said, Lord, please will you give me something today for this sermon? And that morning, my, my devotion in Lexio 365 was about Bertha of Kent. Who on earth is Bertha of Kent? I didn't have a clue who Bertha of Kent was. Here she is. Uh, I'm not sure she actually looked like that, but this is a, this is a statue of Bertha of Kent outside Canterbury Cathedral. Her story is amazing. If you're stuck on amber, be inspired by Bertha of Kent. In the year 578, long time ago now, Bertha, a Frankish princess, so she came from mainland Europe, moved to Canterbury in Kent to marry its ruler, Ethelbert. Catholic Christianity was not yet established in Britain and Ethelbert was a pagan king, but his new bride had a strong Christian faith. Ethelbert restored an old Roman church as a private chapel for Bertha. That was very nice of him, wasn't it? Good husband, which she visited daily, praying diligently for the conversion of her husband. For 18 years, Bertha's daily prayers went seemingly unanswered. 18 years stuck on amber. But in 597, a missionary team sent by Pope Gregory the Great and led by a monk named Augustine, arrived from Rome. These were people who believed that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. And landing in Kent, they first preached this gospel to King Ethelbert, who at last acknowledged the sovereignty of Christ. Within a year... It is estimated that more than 10,000 people had followed Ethelbert's example and converted to Christianity. Well, he was the king after all. But Bertha 
may have thought that she was just, in inverted commas, praying for her husband, but she was also interceding for generations to come. The Lord heard the prayers she offered day after day in the chapel when she was stuck on amber, and he used them to do immeasurably more than anything Bertha ever asked or imagined. That's the God who gives me hope in the thing that I'm stuck on amber with, to persevere because I hope the thing I'm praying for will come to pass. And maybe in this time of waiting, in this time of being stuck, maybe God is doing stuff that I can't even begin to imagine or to dream of. I hope that's helpful for you this morning. Shall we pray as we finish this sermon? Father God, I want to thank you that anybody this morning who is feeling troubled can know that Jesus went through those troubles too. Whether it's bereavement, whether it's anxiety about the future, whether it's a broken relationship, Jesus, you have been there and you have walked the way before us so that you can walk the way with us. Help us to trust you as the one who has great plans and is preparing a wonderful room for us in your Father's heavenly home. We pray for the day when you'll come back and take us to be with you where you are, that we may be, as you say, where I am. And we praise you, Jesus, as the great I am. We praise you as the one who is the way and the truth and the life. And this morning, we pray that you will help us to know you more richly and more deeply in our hearts and our minds and our souls. And for those of us who don't know you at all, may today be the start of asking questions about this Jesus. And finally, Lord, we thank you that we can ask you anything. We thank you for the green lights. We pray you'll give us grace to accept the red lights. And we pray that you'll give us perseverance for the amber lights. May we continue to bring our supplications, our prayers, our cries before you, because you are a good, good God. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.